This is Sherilyn Fenn. I want to welcome you to Raptim Podcast. Hey, everybody. We're back with Wrapped in Podcast, episode 27. Uh, this is part one of episode 27, or perhaps all of 27, depending how the night goes. We're going to talk about the movie Eraserhead. Uh, returning to talk to us is my good friend and colleague, Kyle King. Kyle, what do you know? Uh, I, I don't know much of anything. And <clears throat> also with us is Ken Walzak. Uh, Ken, how is your fingernail? Uh, well, on, on Earth, my fingernail is in a lot of pain, but I'm told that in heaven, everything is fine. <laughs> and Jeff Fallis, uh, have you been uh, getting enough sleep lately? Not really. I've been out. I was last night, I went out and ate some man made chickens and drank some mind erasers with my boy Spike, and I haven't been feeling the same since. And it was a. <laughs> It was a night of strange and troubled dreams. Yeah, it was. It was. It's. It's not been good. Uh, so yeah, I, I need. I need more sleep. Then this baby w- started crying. It was weird. <laughs> best wishes for a speedy. Rec- oh, you are sick, Jeff. Yeah, I think I'm. I am sick. <laughs> so if I'm covered in pustules, since you asked that question, what happened? I don't know. Well, I. I we'll just put like. Uh, you know, a humidifier over your head and everything should be fine. I think that wasn't a humidifier. That was Philip Jeffries. <laughs> so we're talking about a racer head. And at this point I want to tell our listeners, you may be tempted to listen to this podcast because you saw a racer head at some point, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, even five years ago. And you think, oh, that's enough. I, I, I'm a, I'm, I remember enough about the movie. I'm just going to go ahead and listen to this episode of Wrapped in Podcast. I really want to ask you, if, if you have access to it, watch it again. And then listen to this podcast. Because I know for me, and I think for all of the three of you, it, it was incredible to watch this movie to see how much of David Lynch's later work shows up in this movie. Uh, in in a way that I really did not anticipate having seen it, you know, previously 20 years ago. And I really do think that if I were going to connect Eraserhead with the rest of David Lynch's work, I think it's closer to the return than anything else um, in a couple different respects. I, I think, Kyle, you noted that this is the real, you know, pure heroine David Lynch, which is what the Showtime executive had described uh, the return having been, and it's true. I mean, it's, you know, David Lynch had, you know, complete creative control and was able to put together a vision over five years into a film, uh, that, you know, is at times very difficult to watch, but I think lives up to, or, you know, is kind of a Rosetta stone for a lot of his later work. And you could imagine some of the scenes in this movie actually showing up in some weird subplot in the return, uh, like the kitchen scenes, 
uh, with the decrepit grandmother. And and one like interesting point of connection between this movie and The Return is that, it, and we'll talk about sort of like the production history, I think, in more depth. But at the time that David Lynch was had moved to L.A. and he was at the American Film Institute or kind of working in association with it, and he had started working on uh, a script that he had written called, I think it's Garden Back. Garden Back. And, yeah, Garden Back, which was about, it, based off a sculpture that he did about, you know, plants growing out of a man's back. But it had to do with like a, an insect that was a physical manifestation of adultery that got bigger and bigger over time, like a monster. Somehow, apparently, like a Fox executive was like, hey, I'll pay you $50,000 to make this movie and it'll be totally cheap because you have all these free students to work on it. And he was working on it for a while. And then he got really frustrated with the process where his vision wasn't coming true. He had to water down what he was doing. And he quit. He got angry. He was like, you know, fuck you. I quit. I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to go to the fucking hamburger hamlet and drink coffee. Um, and then, you know, they, they came back to him. And he ultimately was able to make a racer head uh, and fully manifest his vision. And that's kind of what he did with The Return, where he kind of jerked around Showtime about, you know, he he was announced that he was going to do it, and then he walked away because he wasn't going to be able to have the control that he wanted. I thought that was an interesting parallel. But what do you guys, uh, guys want to talk about? And I guess we'll start with kind of basic production history and background for the movie. Yeah, Jeff, I know you have read the section in the new uh, book uh, that David Lynch co-wrote about his work, uh, the section about Eraserhead. Was there anything in there you thought that was particularly interesting or revealing to talk about? I mean, the, the book, which is highly recommended to all our listeners, you know, the recently released, I guess, I'm not sure if you want to call it, a mem- it almost combines memoir and autobiography. Uh, it's by David Lynch and Christine McKenna. The book's called Room to Dream. And the format of it, like the first part of, you know, and roughly each section is kind of keyed into one of Lynch's major films or TV productions. And so it has a, you know, almost like a, a chapter that's almost like a, you know, a chapter from a biography, very factually based, lots of interviews with seemingly almost everyone Lynch ever worked with was kind of personally involved with. I mean, I can't think of almost anyone who's not still alive that she didn't get interviews with, but it kind of has this very factual basis of things. And then Lynch responds afterwards and sort of gives his on, on, uh, own take on things. And in large part, I guess Lynch's comments were, um, Similar to with a couple of expansions to what he says in the Lynch on Lynch interview from the nineties. That's kind of a version which accompanies the, I think the criterion collection, uh, eraser head, like the booklet that kind of comes with it. But yeah, I mean, you told the story about garden back, uh, but it's um, what's interesting, you know, it's just the kind of, for me, just the, just sheer, almost like un, likelihood, you know, that this film would ever get financed in sort of the same way. I mean, Lynch, I think on the basis of some of his earlier short films, like the, I think the grandmother was the main one, you know, uh, he gets this invitation to become a fellow at the American Film Institute. And I think leaving Philadelphia uh, for Los Angeles, uh, you know, he describes like seeing the light there for the first time. And it's this huge kind of revelation for him seeing the light in Los Angeles, his first day there. But the, the American film Institute is just kind of fascinating thing. It's, and it's at the time Lynch gets there, it's housed in this big mansion, Greystone mansion, this huge, 
think it's like a 55 room, you know, uh, mansion situated on 18 acres of land built by this oil baron, Edward Doheny, uh, Beverly Hills had acquired it to prevent it from being demolished. And then AFI, the American film Institute basically gets it for like $1 a year starting in 1969 and hopes that they would like restore the property and stuff. So it's this huge thing. And then Lynch shows up and like among the people in his first class are Terrence Malick, uh, uh, Paul Schrader, you know, who went on to write the screenplay for Taxi Driver, most famously, and also direct some really interesting films on his own, right? Along with some people like Caleb Dashnell and Tim Hunter, who went on to work with Lynch for the rest of their life. But it's, I mean, just the, he works on Gardenback, like you said, for like a year and uh, kind of in this post-Easy Rider period, um, you know, gets interest from like a major studio, which seems crazy. Uh, but then, I think when he comes back, that's his first year he works on that and like his script is really short and he can't understand what they want him to do and to expand it to like feature length. And so um, I think when he comes back the second year, they've put him in first year classes and that's what angers him so much. And he quits and then the powers that be at the American Film Institute are like, well, if you're getting mad, we're doing something wrong. And he comes back. And they'd already, at this point, it seems like they'd shied away from making feature... They didn't want to make feature films anymore. I think they tried that and been burned with a couple of student filmmakers. Uh, And so Lynch says, I want to make Eraserhead. And his script for it is like 21 pages long. And so using the old kind of, you know, formula that one, you know, page of a screenplay equals roughly one minute of film time, they think it's going to be a short, not knowing really what they're in for. But the miraculous thing is that they give him funding... He starts filming it in 1972 and, you know, they kind of leave him alone and just like give him access to the stables and like rooms at this, you know, mansion. And he's filming nocturnally because I think there were people from like the Los Angeles parks department who'd go during the day to like maintain the property. And so it's just this Lynch and these weirdos out in the stables for years, you know, and I think after Lynch's marriage breaks down, he actually lives there and lives in Henry's room, you know, and has people lock him in at night, but it's this incredible DIY effort. And I think they had almost everything in the film. Lynch had some hand and constructing and gets a small crew of really dedicated, loyal people, uh, you know, who he would work with for the rest of, of his career, uh, in large part, but it's, it's just kind of, I can't think of almost any other period, in American filmmaking, probably when he would have been able to get away with this and, and get funding and he would, you know, have to abandon it for years on end. And then I think due to, uh, you know, some money from his family and a couple of other people was able to, to patch it together. But it seems like from, you know, it's a four year, five year process from like 1971, 1972 to 1975, Jack Nance's Henry Spencer opens a doorknob and then it was a year later before they were able to film right. the other shot. But it's just this, you know, it's, it's, it's just crazy. Like I can't think of any film school, you know, any studio rarely, I think it's just this weird window of time in the kind of seventies and the American film Institute just kind of being like, let's try this out. We don't really know what's going on. We have access to this property. Let's give this weird guy, money and space and kind of leave him alone to make this film, you know? And I think because he does it nocturnally, 
it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, you know, like <laughs> Lynch is out in the stables, something's going on, but we don't really know what, but yeah, that's, I, that's some of what I think I was, was wanted to say about it. Yeah. You mentioned Terrence Malick. I, I read that Malick apparently screened the movie for a potential investor and declared that it was bullshit. Uh, Malick did or the investor? Malick did. Ah, uh, I never heard that. Yeah. I know that there's like a story about one, someone they showed the film to maybe a, like a distributor after it was done. And he was like, people don't talk like that. People don't act like that. <laughs> and just was, was really disturbed. And he Did had to think point. it was a documentary. I don't know. It just, it really, it really up, upset this guy. So yeah. Yeah. But they don't though. I mean, they really don't. Well, of course. Yeah. 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 It's not an inaccurate but, characterization. But just, I mean, the idea that there's 21 pages of script. Well, yeah. Okay. Because there's, there's lots of silent staring. There's lots of long stretches where nobody's saying anything. So you don't, it probably does translate to uh, uh, one minute of, of dialogue for every, uh, for every, you know, one page of script. There's just a lot of stuff with no dialogue to it. Yeah. 21 sounds long to me. I, I, I don't believe there's 21 pages that include dialogue. It must be 21 pages, most of which do not involve spoken yeah, lines. Most How many it, lines are there yeah. in the whole film? Not that many. And and I think the what's in the actual existing script changed pretty radically for the for the second. The, apparently the first part of the film is pretty much exactly uh what was in the script. But then Lynch, I guess, you know, he also picked up transcendental meditation about halfway through the filming. And I think the the uh a lot of people think that the set, the second half of the film as it exists was influenced by that. It's less pessimistic, less dark, or, you know, um, than it would have been otherwise. And, you know, one thing, you know, kind of, I will say after reading, you know, room to dream. And then I went back and read the chapter on Eraserhead and Lynch on Lynch. Uh, and it really does seem like to Lynch, this was, these were the salad days, <laughs> uh, to, you know, thinking of the, the grandmother tossing the salad in the, the scene. Of but, but, I mean, but I mean, for him, this was a, maybe the closest he ever got to living what he called the art life, you know, like actually living in this world that he created and able to sort of cordon himself off from the real world, uh, so to speak, and just work on creating art in this really inward special strange way you know and, and i think he looks back on this as kind of um the best time in his life and he you know and he had a he had a paper route that he could do in an hour and i think he was like there's this thing at the very end of room to dream where he talks about i remember this one day you know and i was filling my gas tank up at like 11 in the morning looking at this los angeles light and you know he's like tabulating still remembers exactly how much time it took him per month to do this paper route and then how much money he got from it. And then all of the rest of the time he could just live in this eraser head world. So, yeah, I, th I think he looks back on it as like to some level, you know, I guess creatively this untouched art life period of his life. Yeah. Wait, can we go back to the part about how the second half of the film is less pessimistic or less dark than it could have been? I mean, the second half of the film is where Henry kills the baby. Yeah. Was it was it was it filmed chronologically? No, I don't think it was. Okay, so but the I, second I think, half I think of basically, stuff that was made. Yeah, and I, well, I guess the lady in the radiator shows up, and it seems yeah. like Lynch and other people who you know look at it more favor. I guess look at the film less pessimistically. See the lady in the radiator as being this important, I guess, figure of grace or 
redemption in some way, which I'm not sure I agree with that interpretation. Yeah. Supposedly she was, she came about after he was into TM and was told his mantra. Well, she doesn't, at least she doesn't sing, you know, in hell, everything is awful. I mean, at least there's some positive element to this. Yeah. Yeah. But it does seem sort of ironic to me. I mean, I I wrote in my notes just rewatching it. In heaven, in heaven, everything is decidedly not fine, right? Like things are going very poorly when she shows up, and she seems to be sort of like a, a bringer of death. Like her arms contain light and some kind of Lovecraftian horror. It seems like so. I I don't know that I read her as a figure of hope beyond the um, the message of the actual lyric she's singing. I don't know if I do either. She certainly doesn't represent hope for uh, umbilical cord worm babies. Right. That drop from the ceiling as she steps on them. Or babies of any sort. Totally normal movie. Uh, here, let, let, here, let me, I'll read what you guys, this is from the, um, the Christine McKenna part of, about the screenplay for it and how it originally ended. Um, just 21 pages long and has a minimum of stage direction, mostly focuses on evocative descriptions. It's apparent the film's mood palpable and slightly sinister was of primary importance to Lynch. The first half of the movie we've come to know matches the script pretty much word for word. However, the narrative in the second half of the film differs significantly from the script in Lynch's original. The film concluded with Henry being devoured by the demonic baby. This doesn't occur in the film. Rather, a new character is introduced in the third act, and she transforms the conclusion of the story. Lynch experienced a spiritual awakening over the five years Eraser Head was in production, and it makes sense that the film changed along the way. And Lynch himself has said that Eraser Head is my most spiritual film, but no one has ever gotten that from it. And then he says there's a sentence in the Bible that summarized exactly what he meant in Eraser Head but he says he can't say what sentence that is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, of course. It's like the sure. 10 clues to Mulholland Drive or whatever. Right. <laughs> what, have, have you any of you watched the uh, short film about the man and the planet? I don't think so. It's, it's supposed to be a kind of prequel to Eraserhead? By Lynch? Yeah, that, I remember reading that in the Lynch on Lynch stuff that's also in... Criterion collection. I, th- I think notes. I think he just means like the first like three or four minutes of the film. Oh, as being I thought the that, that was a separate movie. No, no, I think it's just like the very, very beginning of the film where it's like the planet and like Henry's head on his side, umbilical sperm baby coming out of his mouth. Oh, uh, yeah, you're right. I think that's I that's like the pro. I, I think that's what they mean by prologue. I don't think it's like a separate film. Yeah, the Criterion but, edition. But I mean the. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say. I mean, like, I do think that like the grandmother and the alphabet of his like films before that seem really related to uh, Eraserhead in lots of ways. Oh, yeah, totally. Well, And those are on the Criterion. There's new restorations yeah. of those and Six Men Getting Sick and the Amputee 2 versions. Um, I've seen all of those. Those have been available for a while in, in various forms. There's also Premonitions Following an Evil Deed from 1995. Which is uh, which completely I, amazing. I have not seen that, so I'll have to watch. Oh my god! Oh, that's it's, like it's, one it's of Lynch's incredible. best like sixty-two seconds of film. Yeah. It's sixty-two seconds. Yeah. First of all, who has that kind of time? Right. So here's here's what he said about the man and the planet. The question is, what was the what about the prologue to Eraserhead with the man and the planet? Obviously, it's very important. How does that relate to Henry's story and the rest of the film? 
And he says, oh, it relates. I've got to tell you it relates. Prologue means what goes before, right? That's exactly what it is. It's very important what goes on there. And no one has ever really written about that front part. Apparently some Canadian guy, George Goodwin, did and talked to Jack Nance. And David Lynch said a few things to Mr. Goodwin, but uh, didn't really give up the goods. So do any of you have a a theory on the, the prologue to the movie? I have a couple of ideas about it. Are you going to tell us about them, or are you going to no, be like, like David Lynch? No, like the Bible verse, I'm going to, I'm going to keep it secret. You can't tell us about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I think it foregrounds some of the things that we're going to see aesthetically. I think that it's meant to situate us in the world of practical effects, and it's meant to let us know that this is going to be a journey into someone's mind. Uh, one of you mentioned a quote about uh, interiority, right? So, you get the surface of this planet that looks very much like either the wiry hair on um, Jack Nance's head or like uh, the surface of a brain. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's meant to signal what, what is going to come up, but I don't think it has like a specific plot significance. I think it's thematically and aesthetically related to what comes next. Well, yeah, we see the, we, we see the same caldera that's on the planet into which the baby worm falls and splashes appear on Henry's bed when he's making out with the woman across the hall well, more than making out. And then we see the, you know, the man, we see the lever guy, right? The diseased oh, man yeah. in the window. Yeah. yeah. I think he's really, I mean, you know, I, I think of when I see Henry, his face like that, I mean, it reminds me of Cooper's head in like episode 17 of the return, you know, this kind of like, it's like superimposed over the planet. Right. And, uh, I don't know. It depends on, I guess what you think the umbilical cord sperm thing is you know because it does come out of henry's mouth it comes from him you know it's almost like the opposite of well you know it's like the the frog bug thing in the return too it reminded me of you know it's coming out of his mouth and it seems like it's flying i'm not sure where but then after that is when you see the lever guy right well and i, I and rather than the frog bear, i mean i specifically thought about experiment vomiting out all that stuff yeah yeah in episode eight right yeah yeah i mean you see the guy in the window i'm i'm looking at that scene now you he first appears right after we go into the hole in the roof of the shed that seems to sort of be on the planetoid at the beginning um and he does kind of call back to mary looking out the window or call forward i guess to mary looking in the window in the date and to henry sitting near the window in his um in his little place or near the radiator um but i don't know to what extent it's valuable to talk about this stuff in the realm of like literal plot i'm sure there are people who care about this who or who think that way i should say think more that way than i'm inclined to who would say look this is all a dream. It's all dreams that take place within dreams. And that's why people don't act the way that they do in reality. And there are weird creatures and the baby is not a human baby and, and various other things. Um, there's, I'm sure there's a school of thought out there, uh, that this is an, a post apocalyptic vision of some kind that, uh, because there's a nuclear blast on the wall and we're, and we see this sort of barren planetscape that we're supposed to believe that things have mutated in the wake of a nuclear holocaust, right? And that people People now behave differently, and the radiator lady looks like that, and the baby looks like that, because this is a rebuilt, newly industrial, post-apocalyptic um, society. I, I don't have much interest in imposing those kinds of uh, interpretations on the film, because they exist at this level of needing the narrative to make sense, which I think I will is say, not I will say this, Jack all, Fisk right? uh, is the guy who yeah. plays the man in the planet. 
um, you know, I think, I, I think he, like most people, I think he did a lot of the art direction and other things for this movie, Eraserhead. And I think he also worked on Terrence Malick's first film, Badlands. And the money I think he got from that, he actually used to help finance Eraserhead. But he played the man in the planet, and he said, Eraserhead's about karma. I didn't realize it when we were working on it, but the man in the planet is pulling levers that symbolize karma. So that's what he says in Room to Dream. Yeah, not that that helps necessarily, but... Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think. I think that's a little bit. A little bit literal for this particular scene. I mean, what. What I. What I thought of, and and this, I'm sure, was not in David Lynch's mind at all. But um, visually, his appearance makes this look almost like a 1950s EC horror comic, and and that that really is the only I think frame of reference that anyone could possibly have had in 1977 because this looked like nothing that had come before it. But we got so much in there that we're going to see again later on. We've got the starscapes that we've seen in in several Lynch films since then. We've got the floating disembodied head looking very much like like Briggs uh, uh, talking to Cooper in The Return. Um, you know, you've already mentioned that uh, the experiment and, and something coming out of, of the mouth. You've got them, uh, what J.R. called the caldera looking down into you know what looks like the the mouth of a volcano there that looks also very much like what uh andy and and the folks from the sheriff's department found near jack rabbit's palace oh yeah yeah so we've we've got a lot of visual signatures that looking back on it now from post the return really tie things together that in 1977 with nothing else to link it to I can't imagine anyone coming out of this without thinking, "What the hell did I just watch?" I mean, there's yeah. just there's nothing to to link it to uh, in, in that time frame. That time frame, and here we are, forty years later, and and it's almost like we've only now learned the vocabulary uh, with which to have any chance at, at at interpreting this. Yeah, that's a great point, and it goes goes back to two other things I think we were just talking about. One of which is the way in which it's fun to think about Lynch just doing all of this art, just doing all of these little day-to-day art projects on someone else's dime, whether it's the AFI or, right. the, or the paper route or whatever else, just living this art life, as uh, as Jeff said, um, and uh, just getting to do all these little projects, you know, lacquering these elevator doors and investing in an old pencil machine and <laughs> building right. rounds of dirt and and, and little stages and the whole thing, uh, like that's that's crazy to imagine um, and super fun to think about. And it's fun for me to imagine how he must have frustrated the absolute living hell out of Malik and everyone else in that class, right? Like he was this wunderkind who must have been the darling of everybody. That like they were who gonna... didn't even con- he, and he didn't even consider himself to be a filmmaker, right? Right, right. right. And so they're letting which, him which back actually in. I think is vitally important to it yeah i mean he, right. he you know he he thought about things in terms of music he thought about things in terms of painting and, and you've got this very tactile uh film that you can you know you can almost touch i mean it's it's very uh very focused on on the the visual the tactile sense of it and you've got the the sense of sound of, of the uh, the music to it which is in many cases isn't even music but again stuff that's familiar to us now but you you know you've got all the you've got horns you got humming you got electrical sizzle you've got all this all these 
industrial sounds. And along with that, you've got dirt, you've got brick, you've got this cement block Bauhaus looking architecture, pipes, tubes, steam, flickering lights, which again, now we think of as vintage Lynch. And at the time, it just, you know, who was filming these things? Who was putting these sounds into it? And the the sonic quality of, of the movie is just such an absolutely crucial part of it because there's like as we've talked about there's so little dialogue and it's all what you see and what you hear and nobody's really talking in a way that makes sense and certainly not explaining things in a way that makes sense and it's all about just this mood and this feel and it's the very beginning of Lynch's the use of sound to to set what you're supposed to how you're supposed to react emotionally viscerally to what you're what you're watching yeah, I mean, just I just think- just stop for a minute. Oh. oh, I was gonna say just stop for a minute and everyone contemplate that David Lynch had made two feature films, Eraserhead and The Elephant Man, and at that point in time, George Lucas asked him to direct Return of the Jedi. I I just cannot get my head around that. Right, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's, I, I think it was. I think he thought he would save money. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, research, yeah, right. I mean, it's he'd be Can living imagine, on the imagine like set. like an. Dude, could you could you <laughs> imagine? A, a, yeah, imagine if David a, a Spike style like Ewok or like Jabba the Hutt is as you know. Can you imagine if David Lynch? Did Job of the Hut? No, forget about Job of the Hut. Let's talk about the that jo- David Lynch Sarlacc pit. Yeah. Like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. The ultimate did But I mean, if yeah. you went to right, if you went to film school with David Lynch, right, you you would despise him. You would hate that he that the rules didn't apply to him. That he got away with doing all this stuff, and then he's he goes away for like five years, and and, and he's filming at night, and he's got a paper out, and he's being weird, and you think you're like done with him, right? Uh, and then he comes out with this thing. It gets made. It gets released, and it's effing brilliant. Right? Like, uh-huh. I'd be so angry. I would feel so uh, worthless by comparison, right? Um, and what's really frustrating is it's not just that, like, oh, he, he can, doesn't consider himself a filmmaker and he's good at all this other stuff. His sense of black and white composition is impeccable, right? Like, the, the, the individual shots are brilliant just one by one and to the point where he was ready to step in on something like the elephant man right away like it's completely nuts that on the back of this he got hired to do a major studio biopic by mel brooks and even nuttier that on the back of that he was offered return of the jedi but um it totally makes sense that he was able to pull off what he did in the elephant man uh which which we've already discussed because he was so good at making films and and at creating you know just uh easily digestible beautiful images like yeah i mean i I do think that there are some precedents you can find you know in the history of film before you know like i think you could tie them into you know i think he did see a lot of the it did seem like in terms of the curriculum besides making films at afi it was mostly like we've got they had a projectionist in like this big ballroom in the mansion and they would just like show movies like all day and then like kind of just kind of talk about them with like no real purpose you know other than to see i think that's where he saw some surrealist films for the first time and um you could you know i think connect him to people like jack smith or stan brockage or kenneth anger oh yeah brockage for sure with the difference being that it was really yeah the difference being that those filmmakers rarely made um feature films, you know, or never made feature films, most of them, or if they did, it would be, you know, at this kind of same weird moment post uh, easy writer when they were just giving 
weird people money to make movies for yeah. a while, you know. But I, but I do think, in ter- especially in terms of the sound design, that's where he's probably the most kind of innovative and kind of unprecedented. Um, and, and then, as Dennis Lim points out in the movie and the book that I, I really love, that I always, you know, feel like I reference like every three or four episodes, "The Man from Another Place." He also points out that if you'd look at Lynch in terms of an art student in art school, what he's doing in this movie is kind of, kind of similar to a lot of stuff that's going on in sixties and seventies, kind of installation art, early performance art, especially the interesting kind of visceral body horror that you see in a lot of kind of seventies, uh, performance art. Uh, and so, yeah, so I think there's, it is inter- important for me, I think, to kind of contextualize it. Um, but I do, I will, I'm not going to take anything away from the fact that I would say that probably along with Citizen Kane, this might be like the most audacious and accomplished, um, you know, debut film from an, any American filmmaker. Oh, wow. So even though it freaks me out and I don't like it, <laughs> it's still pretty amazing. Uh, there, there we get to it. Uh, for more discussion of Brockage, see our episode eight podcast. Uh, when we when we got to episode eight of The Return, uh, Brockage came up and I, uh, I bought a lovely Criterion set using that as an excuse. What do you want to talk about? Should we talk about all the... Ewoks? Yeah, Ewoks. Definitely, definitely Ewoks. Ewoks. Ewok embalmed um, e- Ewok fetuses. Uh, yeah. That's what the Eraserhead babies actually that's, made of. That's, that's, what, that's a rumor. It's not confirmed. Every time David Lynch has been asked like how he made the baby, like he shuts down. He won't talk about it. He's like, oh, maybe I found it. Yeah, maybe someone gave it to me. <laughs> and like, like when they would show dailies like he would make the projectionist cover his eyes so he couldn't see uh, how they were you know working with the baby in the movie so nobody really knows but there is some someone a rumor that they were using an embalmed cow fetus how they could do that for five years uh is quite terrifying but apparent, no, apparently no it has to buried, be puppetry no he yeah. buried well yeah. no i mean but you could you could use a cow fetus as a puppet there's like gears and levers under that table. I, I mean, putting that you can, stuff. You can you can stick stuff inside a fetus. <laughs> just, Strings the, the and pull gears quotes and from this uh, from this podcast yeah, are going to be really, phenomenal. Yeah. Yikes! Yeah, <laughs> but no, I mean, they, but Lynch apparently buried it in an undisclosed location at the conclusion of the film, and they threw a, a wake for it at the oh when God. they finished the movie. So, I mean, and Jack Nance's nickname for it was Spike which apparently stuck spike. I mean, I want to talk about the baby. The baby is really remarkable. Um, Can I go back quickly to something we said at the very beginning of this podcast about uh, seeing the film again after some amount of time? No. Oh, of course. (laughs) No, we're going to be strictly linear in our narrative progression through eraser. There there is no narrative. So there, Um, right. So, uh, No, I just, I think it looks really lustrous now, and it's wonderful that we have like a 1080p Blu-ray available, and people should definitely go back and watch it, because it looks really amazing. It's also a movie that I feel like I have utterly failed to watch properly, because I've never seen it in a theater. Like, it seems like it has to be the absolute apex of whatever constitutes a midnight movie, and I I think Kyle has some thoughts on this too, but it's it's pure cinema, and it's pure aesthetics, and I think you have to be in a certain frame of mind, um, certain for me with my circadian rhythms ideally late at night you have to sort of be in a dark theater right with nothing to distract you certainly no smartphones or anything else you need to be in a, in a in a circumstance where you can just hone in on this thing like i mean 
Right. Just seeing the re-release of 2001 in 70mm, I was like, oh yeah, I've seen this movie before, but you have to really see it under those conditions. And Lynch certainly is draconian about this stuff. He hates any other method of watching movies quite famously, right? But for this, I think you really, you have to go to a theater at around midnight and just kind of do it for an hour and a half. Right. Yeah, and and it and it was part of that that whole era, you know, of of the Elgin Theater in New York City, and and really was the last of the great midnight movies before some of this stuff went mainstream enough that the midnight movie ceased to be a thing. But yeah, the uh, there was a recent special on it, uh, midnight movies from the margin to the mainstream that uh, that covered a lot of these movies, including Eraserhead. Uh, and, you know, and you had some of the early uh, uh, John Waters stuff like Pink Flamingos. And, of course, you had things like the Rocky Horror Picture Show um, uh, that y- you literally can't have the experience of watching the movie at home. I mean, the they, in fact, there's a clip in that special where Roger Ebert says, I can't think of anything more boring than sitting at home alone and watching the rocker rocky horror picture show it just it just isn't the same movie and i don't for different reasons in in the case of Eraserhead, because god imagine what sort of things audience participation would would bring to that film but it, it is something that i think you do need to be in that experience i mean lynch talks about and, and jeff you even alluded to him you know very much living inside that world for such a long period of time and and i think if you're sitting in your own home you know you can you can you can freeze frame it you can get up you can go to the kitchen you can go to the bathroom you know you you can step outside that world and i think in a theater you're you're pretty much you're pretty much locked in and and you're you're a part of it and you're just along for the ride and i, I do think it'd be a different experience uh just immersing yourself completely in that world what something i noticed in the experience of watching it was that for a movie that has about you know 15 lines of dialogue and a lot of very you know typical lynchian slowly paced scenes like especially the scene in the kitchen with the mother and the grandmother where it's it's just very slow and deliberate and nothing is happening of course until grandma's you know tossing the salad and, and uh, like some sort of marinette and is smoking. And that seems to be the only thing she can do, but it, the movie didn't drag. Uh, in fact, no. I was yeah. surprised at how quickly it moved. Like I couldn't believe that I like looked at the timer or whatever. And I was like, it's 45 minutes in. I can't believe it's halfway done. Yeah. In a theater, it would go past and uh, like lightning. Um, the grandmother doesn't toss the salad. She gets it tossed around her. She's just the table on which the, on which Mary's mom tosses the salad. Well, no, she no. Well, she, yeah, but her, put, her hands the bowl, are being put, manipulated the, in it. Yeah, they put the bowl on her lap, and then Mary's mother grabs Grandma's hands and puts the salad tongs in them, and then sort of mimes through the action of tossing the salad. Oh, why are we oh, talking she, about? She this? puts her hands on like, the seriously, thing. Why? Yeah, don't she, yeah. she she literally like picks up her hands, you know, at, and and moves her hands through the right. actions of tossing the salad with the tongs in her hand. I see. I thought she yeah. just used her lap as a table. It is crazy to think about that the original cut of the film was 20 minutes right. longer. And I think uh, it was like an hour and 50 minutes. And then after one of the first, I think, screenings with an audience, Lynch, and it seems like I think I've never, I, those have never shown up on anything, those four scenes. And I think one of them involves like yeah, Catherine Coulson, you know, who went on to be the log lady. Um, and this other woman, like basically they're in a room next door to Henry's apartment getting tortured with some sort of like electrical device. And then there's some scene in which Henry's like, I think kicking an ashtray or something in like the lobby 
but there were, you know, it was 20 minutes longer, and I think Lynch actually cut it. It sounds like on the actual existing yeah, print, that's which it. everyone that's, told it that's not That's exactly to. what he said. And I think yeah. those, and, and I think those scenes might just be gone forever. But I, but I agree. I mean, I actually, you know, I, um, in rewatching it, and I think I'm like a lot of you, like it'd probably been 15 or, or 20 years since I'd seen the film, and. It's it was a really stressful experience for me, uh, and I I think I watched an hour of it, and even though I was having a really unpleasant time, I had a similar experience. I was like, this is still going by really quickly, but yeah, it's it's um, once you enter, once you're in it, you're in it, you know. And I have any of us had the experience of seeing it in a theater? No. I have not. No, no, none of us have. That's that's yeah. a bummer. Yeah, and I, I I will say that of you know I consider myself a huge Lynch fan, but I had only seen this once on VHS, you know, and I think I watched it like on some Saturday afternoon at my parents' house when I was like 16 or 17. And, you know, I probably rented it from, I think similar to you, Kyle, like a blockbuster yeah. video or a Hollywood video. Yeah, or something. I, I rented it's it still, from the Athens, Georgia blockbuster video, which tells you yeah. exactly how far back that was. Uh, yeah. And I, I watched it yeah. the one time on VHS and, and, uh, hadn't seen it in the 25 years since then. Probably the first thing by Lynch that I'd ever seen that didn't have Kyle McLaughlin in it. Yeah. But it, it was a, a, I mean, a horrifying experience. I remember watching it. Like I just felt like, I, I had a trouble going back into the world and I just felt this like terrible sensation in my stomach or something, this gut from watching the, the film. And, and I think it's the Lynch film. I, I think all of the rest of his movies I've, I've rewatched at least once, you know, kind of whatever since then or since I, I saw them and it's, yeah, it's something well, else. And Jeff, I mean, it, 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 it creates its own mood, but I find it deeply unpleasant and, and, and Jeff, Anxiety let me let me producing. ask you, and I don't want to get overly personal yeah. here, but but I, I you know of course you were not uh, on the podcast for a little while because you you uh, uh, have a new uh, have a new child in your household. As a new parent, how much of it is new parent uh, being uncomfortable by the subject matter of of this? Because see, I've I watched it before I had kids, and then I watched it again having kids who are now you know older and in school and and a little bit removed from that. And I think if I were in your position, it would have disturbed me a lot more. Yeah. It, and it did. <laughs> and I, um, you know, especially kind of the whole sequence once they get the baby home and just, I mean, I, I, I think you said in your notes about this, Kyle, that you thought this was kind of funny, you know, like the, this, the, the, you know, and I could see, you know, in the same way that the, the dinner sequence is like this, you know, horrible comedic kind of thing. But for me, still being too close to the experience, like just that, you know, not being able to, I mean, it's, it's the most, you know, nightmarish like depiction of that, you know, of, of, of the kind of first few months of, of parent. And, and I, you know, I, I think when we kind of were going through, you know, uh, what we were going to cover, I did have some reluctance to kind of rewatch it, you know, kind of for that, that reason. But it, it was, you know, my experience of watching it was, I think, as I said, Kyle, much more painful and bruising than hilarious, you know, and I think as, as a, I've never seen the, no, the stress I, of the experience kind of depicted more hor- horrifically and searingly and nightmarishly. And then I, maybe I'll laugh about it in the future, but for right now it was, 
it was rough. And then, I mean, for me, the, just the, and, and, and I can see yeah. that. I, I would, and again, if I were in that position uh, at at this point, I think I'd feel the same way. I mean, to me, it is is the the distance because it's such an exaggerated depiction of how overwhelming new parenthood is, and obviously, it's taken to this, uh, this nightmarish degree, extreme. Yeah. And and it like so much of what Lynch does, it's it's. Hilarious without actually being funny. Yeah. You know, it's a thing you find yourself laughing at, but also not being quite comfortable laughing at it. And I get why you didn't laugh at it. But yeah, I actually I actually found some of that stuff with the interactions between Mary and and Henry, uh, you know, talking about this this twisted child as though it were, you know, just a normal baby. Um I, I actually found that funny in a very creepy sort of way that you know wasn't helped when mary goes to get her suitcase out from under the bed and looks for all the world like bob at the foot of of, uh laura palmer's bed so and the the other weird thing for me was i I do remember thinking yeah when my daughter was really young and we were swaddling her i think at one point i made the joke to my wife who has not seen the film and i told her she's you know at the you know i don't think she still should watch it (laughs) uh but uh, but but (laughs) the the, um yeah no like when I was trying to like learn how to swaddle my daughter, like I kept thinking of the eraser head baby and then rewatching it. I think I thought that the baby was swaddled when in reality it's these bandages, which made me feel right. I, for some reason it, it was funnier. It made me feel, it made, made it feel less creepy that she was actually, that the baby was actually spike was held together by these bandages instead of a traditional swaddle. So, yeah. Because swaddling is yeah. just bizarre. Yeah, that, that, that is that is reassuring. Yeah. That is quite yeah. reassuring. Yeah. I agree. But it was yeah. but it was rough. And like I said, it's like this deep id nightmare version of like the anxiety that comes with being a new parent. And it it was it was tough to watch. I felt immediately thrown back into like the blurry, sleep deprived, you know, state of like the first few weeks of parenthood in in, in, in a, a not pleasant way. Well, and stressed is the right word, too. I mean, you, you said, oh, it stresses me out and I don't want to watch it again. I mean, you said stressed two yeah, or three times, yeah. and that's the word that's in my notes the most, yeah, right? I, I'm like, oh, my God, look at the look on Jack Nance's face. I am so stressed in, like, you know, the first two minutes and then the whole rest of the film, right? <laughs> and even as as the childless member of the podcast, it was a very different experience watching it as an adult than it was watching it as a teenager. You know, as a teenager, I wanted some kind of, like, weird, fucked up... Uh, avant-garde cinema because I was just learning what, you know, filmmaking was about. And so I wanted whatever weird boundary-pushing thing. And I also hadn't, like, you know, experienced life and consequences and stuff, right? Um, so uh, now, like, the right, the world that, uh, that Henry lives in is fundamentally extremely stressful even before you get to the baby stuff and uh you know i'm at a point in my life where i i now sympathize with the parents of the rebellious teen characters and not the rebellious teen characters and things right so i sympathize with with henry and his effort to make his way in whatever this dream world or post-apocalyptic world or whatever it is is i thought even before you get to all that stuff i thought you were about to say you sympathize with mr and mrs x (laughs) listen bill x (laughs) bill x is phenomenal he laid every pipe in that town yeah, I'm I'm four years removed from having a baby, but ten years removed from having you know my my oldest child, and I would say that the way that Henry and Mary are reacting to that situation is portrayed quite realistically. Yeah. I mean, le- leave out the fucked up baby, and that's not that different from how it can go. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, I think I was more upset and grossed out 
by the chicken. <laughs> the man-made chicken than anything else. Man-made chickens. The man-made chicken, the size of your fist, and like the absurdity of having to carve it, and then what happens when he tries? God, it's so that, oozy. For, for There's so, so much bad. oozing in this movie. For some reason, the similarity of the dancing man-made chickens here and the kind of sledgehammer video by Peter Gabriel. Uh, yeah, always <laughs> it takes the edge off it for me, which I think I'm not sure if those are dancing. I think those are dancing turkeys. But I, should, yeah. I wish I had ne- remembered that. It might have made me that think. made me feel better, Jay. I always thought I'd share that with you. So, wait, can we go around and say what the like uh, squickiest moment in the whole movie was for us this time around? Was it was it the chicken for you, Jr.? Because it's it, it's a different moment for me. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, there are a lot of things that are upsetting, and clearly when he's you know. St- Dabbing the baby, yeah, yeah. Just, that's, that's, that's got to be it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I had I had to look away from that. That's uh, at that's times. not it for me either, though. Oh uh, yeah, I think that 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 and the chicken. I mean, there's something so gratuitous about the chicken oozing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's uh, that. Whereas, like, of course, yeah. like it's fucked up to stab even you know a cow fetus baby, but uh, the the chicken man and what and th- but then at this and then. Uh, Mrs. X's reaction to it. Yeah. The, yeah. It, I can't tell Ugh. if that's ecstasy or agony, but she's like, she's doing this like speaking in tongues thing. It's awful. She, she creeps me out didn't the very it, most. Didn't, didn't that scene reminded me of uh, the, the driver in front of the double R yes. in the return. Yes. She's sick. Extremely. So <laughs> yes, but, but is, is the, are the family dynamics in the X household really that different from the family dynamics in the Palmer household? That's, I was going to, I was no, actually, they're basically was the same. Ask you guys, they're basically yeah, the so same. The dinner scene in this movie or the dinner scene in, in Firewalk with me, which is more disturbing to you. Uh, yeah, right. Firewalk with me is more disturbing uh, fire, to me. I mean, yeah. I'm, it might be the dinner is, scene yeah. in this one, actually. I mean, Mrs. X is the most disturbing thing to me, and uh, the most disturbing moment to me isn't even slicing open the baby or slicing open the chickens. It's the point when Mrs. X has Henry cornered and is telling him that there is a baby, and in the midst of telling him this, just attacks his neck. She's just, like, violently making out with his neck, right? And I can't tell if she's, like, nibbling or kissing or licking it, but either way, like, Mary comes in and like separates them and it is just so violently a breach of the social contract that I just recoiled in yeah. so much horror. I don't like back to the like people don't talk that way, right? People don't behave that way. There's no reason on earth for her to make that decision at that moment and it is so fucked up that it just puts me off instantly. I mean, I I think it's almost as disturbing as Angelo Battlementi dribbling the coffee out of his mouth. Yeah, in a very similar way. <laughs> well, I was going to say for me, the most horrific thing about that scene was Mary's reaction to it, which is so childlike and kind of, and it's like that this has happened before and she's not really surprised yeah. and like, mom, don't, you know, I brought a boy over to the house again. Why do you always do this? And, and kind of rude. It's, but yeah, her, her reaction for me is the most horrific thing about that because she doesn't entirely seem surprised. It's just, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's awful. And then that line Clearly. is so chilling, right? That they're not even sure it is a baby. Yeah. So yeah. That's rough. Clearly, though, if if uh, you know if aliens ever land on Earth and want to learn about how to interact with human beings, the the Lynch canon is not what we need to show them <laughs> to teach them the proper ways of interacting. But but they'll if learn we're to trying sweep. to teach those aliens to drive. <laughs> the Lynch canon yes. will teach them the rules of the road. 
Mr. Eddie, by God, will let them know this is how you operate a motor vehicle. I feel Driving like, and ma- sweeping were great. Maybe Eraserhead's one of the movies that, like, you know, ancient alien Tommy was so watched before he decided to join our species. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. That's the best thing anybody has said on this podcast yet. That's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Ancient Alien Tommy Wiseau is a spoiler for the 8-bit video game that somebody made as a tribute to the film The Room. Uh, you are the best. Okay, there's like some version of like the Voyager Golden Record, you know, that like it had a racer yes. head on it and it made it way to Tommy yes. Wiseau's <laughs> home planet. And see, and it cra- and, and now we're talking oh, about wow. Star Trek the Motion Picture, which is my favorite Star Trek and the best of the franchise. Just no, just no, d- don't, just don't even, don't even. It's the official best Star Trek movie according to this podcast, and there's no, no dissent it is not on official. that point. The, Nobody the disagrees thing, with me. The, the, the only thing good you can say about that. That horrible movie is that it's not Star Trek Five. Uh, so you wound me. Oh come on! I mean Nemesis. I mean you're you're still within the the original series. Oh, no, Nothing's I'm, worse than Nemesis. Okay, I'm sorry. When I say Star Trek, I mean the original series. If I mean Next Gen or any of these other wacky things, I'll refer to them that way. But no, when I say Star Trek, I mean Star Trek. I mean William Shatner coming and kicking your captain's ass. Star Trek. The question for JR is, cut this or make it into the cold open? Cut this or make it into the cold open? It might go, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry to introduce sorry. Tommy with soap, but I just saw the disaster artist Never, recently. never apologize. No, 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 yeah, no that was, that was you, you definitely did the right thing there. So what, what grossed you out the most? Did you even, you tell us, Ken, it's, it's the, it's the mom, mom going after Henry. What, what about you, It's Jeff? the baby. It's killing the baby. That's just as, as yeah, absolutely. absolutely just. Yeah. That's up there. It's it's horrible. It's it's truly horrifying. Yeah. And I think I yeah, think it, and it I think is, actually it is conceptually horrifying, and it is presented. Its execution is presented in a particularly gross way. So it's yeah, it's it's doubly disgusting. But I also do feel like the fact that it's kind of in the movie and presented it that much kind of visceral detail probably is one of those things that you know, helped made it, make it popular as a midnight movie in the seventies. You know what I mean? At the, you know, just kind yeah. of, you know, kind of, yeah, there's this gory bit at the end with the baby, I mean, you, you know, you have to see it. Oh my God. You know, but yeah, I, it's, yeah. That, that for me ask, is the though, worst scene. Is, is Henry setting out to kill this child and is he doing it out of yeah. malice? Because I, I couldn't tell if he was trying to release a miserable creature from its, you know, mortality, if he was trying to determine the true nature of this alien creature by unswaddling it, or if he really was like just sinisterly lashing out because he'd seen the sexy neighbor with her new very ugly paramour and yeah. he thought that he couldn't get laid because he had a baby, right? I mean, that's, that's the most sinister interpretation that's the worst karma that's the most evil thing right Um, that's so that's the way i think i read it the first time i saw the movie and then this time i think it actually was more like he was just almost curious to see what was under the bandages yeah i think realized he was killing it and then i did see it as more of like you know a horrifying but like there was something perhaps putting it out of its misery or act of mercy yeah, for, right. instead of an act of murder, which is how I read it the first time. For, for a guy with the evolved arm on his nightstand and a picture of an atomic bomb going off on his wall, Henry's a fairly sympathetic character, all things considered. Yeah. 
Uh, and kind of right. sucks, I mean, and, though. And, and also, yeah. I think you guys are being trapped in some bourgeois yes, linear narrative. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And how you're thinking about it. Because we are talking about a guy who, in a dream or maybe not, had his head lopped off and right. uh, material from inside extracted to turn into erasers on pencils. Yeah. And and then he re- appears before he kills the baby with the baby's head. And that's what I was going to say. So, yeah, right. I read it as yeah. him almost, you know... I, I don't want to try to get too Freudian with this movie, even though it like probably invites Freudian readings more than any I, other movie I, I, ever. Yeah. I think well, you're right. Yeah. Except but for Blue right. Velvet. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's the, right. Yeah. But it, it's, it's, it seems to me, yeah, like it, it, I did see it as like him killing off part of himself. I don't know which part, but like, yeah, it did seem like this act of, I'm not saying suicide. So he, he was attacking something in himself by that point, because like you said, in the little sequence before that, you know, we see the baby's head coming out of his, you know, Henry suit. So wait a minute, yeah. wait a minute. This, Jared, which which Star Wars movie was he asked to direct? Return of the Jedi. Okay, Return of the he Jedi. Was asked to, Is yes, that the one with Admiral Akbar in it? Yeah. Yes, it is. And because Admiral Akbar looks yeah. total ripoff, creepily like the the uh, the adult version of this baby. You guys, wow, yeah. So the, he's a Mon Calamari baby. Yeah, and when the sexy neighbor comes over in Eraserhead, the baby does scream, "It's a trap!" So right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of which, shall, shall we talk about the occasional tendency in David Lynch's movie for a sultry, mysterious, Ugh. olive-skinned woman showing up, and then you have sex with her, and then bad stuff happens? <laughs> yeah, I, I I want to talk about that. Yeah, na- 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 name one where that doesn't happen. The straight story, You're um, right? Yeah, although the straight story has that teenage runaway where there's sort of like consequences for sex, and I I don't know. I mean, it yeah. the, the movie 100 percent does not pass the Bechdel test. The movie has female characters that are so caricatured as to be like I think I said commedia dell'arte, right? It's like the the harried harridan of a wife who is not appealing anymore because she has to take care of a baby. The super sexy next door neighbor who's credited I think as beautiful woman next door. There. There just isn't any the shrewish mother-in-law. Like there just isn't any complexity. Now there isn't any complexity to anyone other than Henry because it's really just his interior life and his interiority. So it's not like women are um, alone in that respect. But the female um, portrayals are pretty ugly, and I think that that's that's pretty commonly found. And the ne- next door neighbor is right out of the um, Dorothy Valens mode too, right? When she's like, "I got locked out of my apartment. I had all kinds of blue velvet flesh." <laughs> I mean, for me, the, the what that reminded me of her kind of coming out of the dark like that, and just the kind of flatness and quietness of her voice. It reminded me of um, Patricia Arquette yeah, in Lost, Lost Highway, Highway. Yeah. more than oh, anything yeah. else. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Now that you say that, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I kind of reject the significance of applying the Bechdel test to a movie like this. That's the, the point of the test, I think, is to reflect reality. Right. No, I think some that's level. Fair. And this this movie in no way I think should be interpreted that way. Um and, and it's interesting mentioning Lost Highway, because back to what I was thinking before, like in a way, Henry and the baby are kind of like what's his name? Bill Bill Pullman, Bill Pullman and Balthazar Getty. Friend of the pod. <laughs> yeah, in front of the pod in in Lost Highway, 
where there's like some and and where there where there's and 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 maybe even you know going back to Mulholland Drive in terms of this displacement between the two characters. And, yeah, I don't know. No, that's good. Yeah, yeah. And there's a head thing, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Pullman's Pullman's head explodes and then turns into Balthazar Getty. Balthazar yeah. but Getty kind of has an eraser head too in that movie. So. Mm, yeah. yeah. So if if he's killing the baby out of a sense of mercy or like uh, just trying to learn what it's about or or an effort to sort of heal it or whatever, that's a very different movie, I think. Uh, that to the extent, and Jair's right, to the extent that this matters at all, right? Um, but. Uh, I think the first time around when I thought he was killing the baby, this was more of like, because, you know, I'd seen Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet and stuff before I saw this the first time, right? So I think I thought of it then more as another effort by Lynch to get at the reasons why people commit unspeakable acts. Like infanticide, right? Like uh, rape and and murder in Twin Peaks, like those sorts of things. And right back to the, uh, I now have the scene up with Mary at the foot of the bed, looking like Bob, right? Um, if if that's if if the horrors of parenthood and the depravities of you know adultery with your neighbor and whatever else are supposed to be um, depicted as reasons why people resort to horrible behaviors, yeah, I, th- I think that's a pretty fair and reasonable reading. Uh, I definitely don't think that motherfucker was trying to heal the baby in any way and what he was doing. And I think that it's fair to point out the Garmin Bozio oh, connection yeah. 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 To, yeah. to the stuff that, 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 but it really, to me, and I have to rewatch it, it really looked like it had more of the consistency of grits than cream corn. Well, and it, it foamed like your grade school baking soda volcano, right? So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty quick. That's true. Is now maybe a good time to take a short break? We can start another track. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, cool. All right, we'll take a short break and be back in a minute for part two of Eraserhead. Okay, I'm pressing stop, yeah? Yeah, everybody can press stop. Stop. I have no idea what the fuck we're going to talk about in part two. (laughs) 